Welcome to Peak Show, soon to be disappearing from HBO Max. I'm your host, Omaha Cinnabon manager Bree Rohde, and who is with me here today? I am regrettably too old for Leonardo DiCaprio, Liz. I am poorly animated MCU character, Frederick. And I'm your coked out line cook boyfriend, Mint. Yay! Welcome to the show, everyone! Um, Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, Today we're gathered here to mourn and celebrate the year that was in 2022 pop culture, with the caveat being that we still have Q4 lying ahead of us. And I really hope that Q4 2022 isn't like season five levels of craziness. I hope the last bit of the year is a bit more normy than the rest of it, both in terms of pop culture and the world. Um, and we're also celebrating and mourning the second season of Peak Show. We are taking a bit of a break before we come back for season three in January. So to celebrate, we've welcomed back to, back uh, buds of the show, Liz, Fred, and Mint, who have all been on previous episodes. And I would love for each of you to go around and give me some of your personal peaks and triumphs of the year. Uh, we'll start with Mint. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned on the David Fincher episode, I taught a whole university course uh this summer and it went wonderfully had great students uh they got really into david fincher and yeah it was a grand time (laughs) i love that all right fred why don't you take it for us Uh, i've had a refreshingly quiet year so i think the peak for me has been kind of figuring out a good work-life balance uh which is something that uh you know as a as a, a millennial i've had a lot of trouble with throughout my life and I'm finally slowly getting there and soon soon moving to be closer to family which I think will also help that quite a bit. Fred, did you quiet quit? <laughs> oh, I've been I've been quiet quitting for a while. <laughs> um, I will also say uh, I know you're not uh, super into self-flattery but uh, one of uh, a thing that I would have said was a peak for you. I I love almost every, not almost I love everything you you write that I get that I get a chance to read. But one particular article you wrote about um, like the binge drop model versus the like weekly episode drop model and um, the kind of new life that that model is breathing back into streaming. Love that article. So. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of event viewing and I, I yes. get really excited when there's like a new episode of whatever show I'm watching on Sunday night or, or whatever mm-hmm. night of the week. It's great. And we're going to so happy we're going back there. <laughs> And we're going to be talking about that, but now we got to talk about Liz's peaks and triumphs of the year. Honestly, the peak of my year is after two years of waiting, finally seeing Harry Styles. Yay! <laughs> That's been the thing that I've been waiting for through the pandemic and has been keeping me going this year. And so now that it's over, I have to find new things to look forward to, which is mainly my Sunday night HBO drops. <laughs> but we... We keep going. We persevere. Yay! Um, I. It's so funny because, like, I, I sometimes feel like the only person who likes Harry Styles. Like, it's one of the, <laughs> he's one of those artists that I'm like. I don't want to say people either love him or hate him because I don't think a lot of people hate him, but a lot of people like don't listen to him because he's like not their style or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just like, oh, he's nice. He's nice. <laughs> and then I'm just like, I don't think I'm capable of feeling that intensely about any artist. And so, but like seeing so many people going out for Harry Styles, I'm like, oh, that looks so fun. That looks so fun. So I'm, I was really was happy you got fun. to do it finally. Thank you. Yay. Thank you. Um, I think my peak for this year, I mean, I, I moved last year, really settled my life in Norfolk County, but um, getting back into teaching dance, I'm with a really amazing studio um, and I'm teaching twice a week. 
I finally got certified as an acro instructor. I've been teaching acro for a really long time, but I was never actually certified. So that was really fun. And I got 100% of my Ooh. exams. So uh, ah! good to know I'm still a little ass kisser. Um, <laughs> it never stops. But uh, yeah, it's 2022. Like, like I said, broadly, the world not great but um if all i can be is radically individualistic i'll at least try to get that bread um so i want to get right into it um into what we think the general biggest entertainment story of the year is i'm going to start with this but i'm going to try really hard to not go off on a huge rant but um just netflix falling behind in the streaming market i think really i can't believe more of us didn't expect it i don't even think i expected it that much but it it makes a lot of sense when you think about it because like every other streamer i think netflix is the only major streamer in which streaming revenue is its only revenue and it's like what like constant unmitigated growth wasn't like possible and sustainable and so now it's like <laughs> scrambling it's it's kind of like shopify with all those layoffs like what you didn't think that like the growth sustained from a completely not out of left but like a pandemic is not something that most people predict. So it's like, you really thought that was going to be sustained. So Netflix kind of falling behind and losing its shine as other streamers really start to gain on it, um, I think is a huge, huge story. And also, if Netflix does integrate an ad tier, I actually think it's going to possibly change the way Netflix looks at renewing and um, canceling series because suddenly a different metric is going to matter. So that's, I, I don't even think Netflix bringing ads is the worst thing that could happen um, because of that. So yeah, Netflix biting it. Uh, how about Mint? There are so many options. Uh, the one that you just <laughs> listed, like Netflix falls, next, Netflix's fall from grace is astounding to watch. But for me, it's the shelving of Batgirl. Um, mm. uh, and I guess the Scoob sequel as well, because um, both of them got shelved. But... <laughs> All right. Like in film history, we have a couple of like big examples of a movie that was effectively done not being shown. Like the day the clown cried um, is kind of the most famous one. But to do it just as like a a tax write off, which is what we're hearing from this new Discovery yeah. Plus thing, it's it's not a thing that we have a history for in Hollywood movie making, and so. It's, it's terrifying to me as a film fan mm -hmm. to see that that's an option for studios yeah. now. Um, because, like, mm -hmm. we're losing what, from everything we know, was a great, not debut performance, but, like, star turn performance from the lead in Batgirl. Um, mm -hmm. And we're just missing all of that work. And that's sad and scary. I, it also makes me think of something you mentioned in our David Fincher discussion, which is that a lot of people do not think about labor when they think about um, movies and the movie industry. And I don't pretend to know what con what contracts look like, but I do know that a lot of contracts and a lot of payment, uh, hin even for like support crew and some of the lowest paid people on those movies, hinges on release and revenue and stuff. And so that's really shitty to me uh, yeah. as well. There are a lot of people... Um, yeah, like, of course, I, I feel really bad for, like, Brendan Fraser and stuff. Um, but there's a lot of other little people, like, yeah, the, the smaller guys on it that I feel really, really bad for. Um, all right, Liz, what do you think is the biggest entertainment story of the year? 
Well, I think it kind of like links together with what both of you have already discussed, but kind of like the streaming like conglomeration that's starting to happen, like especially um, in like the US markets, like I'm thinking particularly with like HBO Max and Discovery Plus, (laughs) I think it is. And what that kind of means going forward, especially when we consider like that Netflix isn't doing what it used to be doing. And then HBO Max is, as like Mint discussed, cutting all of these like Batgirl, but then also just completely getting rid of so many different kind of titles from their library and then how they've. Um, kind of workshopped what HBO is going to have versus Discovery and if we're eventually just going to get back to the cable model essentially of like you are going to have these like package of different quote-unquote streamers but it's and is there going to be ads involved as well when we go back to Netflix so I think that's something that's really interesting and also something that I think like if we had been like kind of paying attention, it's something that makes sense. Like, of course we were gonna reach this point again. Like there's an oversaturation of the market when it comes to all of the different streamers. Like I have like five different streaming like, <laughs> things on my TV right now, essentially. And I have to go between them the same the way I would go through my guide on cable to find yeah. something to watch. So I think it's gonna be really interesting going forward on like how the streamers combine themselves if ads are going to be involved and what that's going to look like for the consumer going forward yeah it's, I've, it's super oh, sorry go ahead. ahead well i've said this before i'll say it again i sometimes feel like the you know quote-unquote future of streaming it's either like you said was going full circle back to the cable model or i think maybe the closest glimpse of like the future that looks different is what both apple and and i guess amazon do which is your streaming entertainment is bundled not with other video streaming, but with your music streaming and your uh, cloud storage and your photo storage and stuff. Um, you know, that's kind of why I am a bit of an Apple TV fangirl in that sense. Anyway, Fred, sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's totally fine. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Apple's a great counterpoint too, because I, one of the things with that conglomeration that I find fascinating is that uh, we're really feeling it as as viewers, as consumers. Like we kind of see the effects of it. I think Batgirl is a great example of that kind of weird, like uh, financially based decision that's totally like just robbing us of a movie and robbing the filmmakers of a movie. Or something like you know Disney buys 20th Century Fox and suddenly they don't want their movies to be streamed on HBO Max. So to get around these existing deals. We're watching a movie like Prey, which looks amazing and would have been so great to see on a big screen, but it's streaming only because, well, we, we got to keep this competition going. We've started con- conglomerating in this way that, that really kind of punishes everybody except uh, somebody's bank account, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, speaking of theatrical, you mentioned, and I didn't, I didn't know this was happening, but uh, tell me a little bit about Netflix and its theatrical footprint. Yeah, this is something that they they just uh, sent out a press release this week uh, with their whole film slate for the next, I think it's just until the end of 2022, but they've got, I think, like maybe five films, five of the kind of bigger bigger films they're releasing are going to have a 45-day exclusive theatrical run before they go to Netflix. They haven't announced yet the the new Knives Out sequel, whether or not that's going to be one of those, but... um, yeah, a few of these movies, like this is the first time Netflix is doing this. They've they've had the theatrical releases that are usually like 
yeah, you can see it in five different movie theaters for like two days before it lands on Netflix. But now they seem to be like doing this kind of real push for for theatrical releases for some of these films, which it, like kind of seems like it goes against the whole way we look at Netflix as this streaming only uh, service. Um, it, it, it kind of on the one hand, it seems like kind of this conservative move towards the way things used to work. But on the other hand, maybe that's good. Uh, may, maybe some things about the way Hollywood used to run were kind of cool. And if we can get this marriage of the two two different versions of uh, film releases, that might be a really exciting move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know none of us have ever uh, like worked so as much in the programming side of things. But one of the things I learned about Netflix and its uh, established theatrical model uh, from I guess, future friend of the show, Andrew Jupin, who's going to be on uh, next season to discuss the X-Files. Um, he was saying that, because um, he works in film programming, and that it's like a huge pain in the ass to screen a Netflix, uh, a Netflix original that they're trying to do for awards. Like they have all these crazy stipulations about how often it can be shown and the tiny windows and even like the days of the week on which it can be shown, I think. like. He mentioned this a while ago, but he said there were, I think he said there was a movie that like it was literally just too much of a pain in the ass to screen. And so hopefully those days are gone too. Um, yeah, that would be great. I mean, there, I think they're still not allowed at Khan. Khan won't screen Netflix yeah. films mm -hmm. um, because they're, which, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I think if they're saying, if you want to just be a streaming service, then just be a streaming service, leave us out of it. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Um, so uh, we're going to get on to our faves of the year. Um, and when I was looking at our list that we made, I was like, wow, this was a really good year. Um, I'll say it when it comes up, but there's one thing I'm shocked that we all left off. So I'm um, going to start. I asked everyone to list up to two things that were uh, their favorites of the year. And we'll talk about why. So uh, TV shows or seasons of shows. So Fred, what were yours? Uh, so two shows that really stood out for me. One was The Rehearsal, um, which uh, totally blew me away. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, obviously a contentious show um, that, that left a lot of people uh, pondering the ethics of, of unscripted television or maybe <laughs> very scripted television. We're not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, and I think what really stood out for me with that show, with, with Nathan Fielder kind of roping people into this weird experiment where they, they rehearse real life. Um, was that I, I didn't really come away with any strong uh, conclusion one way or another. Like, mm -hmm. like was this this totally unethical, weird experiment? Uh, was it, in fact, nowhere near as unethical as most of the reality TV out there? Um, how much of it was scripted? How much of it wasn't? Was it just one big art project where we, we really don't know where those lines are drawn? And that's the whole point. Um, I'm sure and, Liz and, really, and I have asked the exact same questions about Dance Moms over and over. So, <laughs> Right, right? Like, I, I mean, yes, <laughs> the whole history of reality TV is full of these weird kind of experiments with people where, where you get a sense that real damage was done. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what stood out for me after I thought about the rehearsal for a while after it was over was, I'm not sure how much damage was done. Um, you know, there's the one sort of viral moment where the, this this one child actor kind of starts to identify with Nathan Fielder and see him as this real father figure and it's this kind of heartbreaking moment where he has to be told that it's not real and oh, on the damn. one hand like that that seems that seems harmful for that kid for in a very real kind of tangible way uh, but also in a way that I think that must happen all the time that must be such a common part of 
of child acting and Mm -hmm. you know watching this show where nathan fielder kind of plays fast and loose with getting informed consent from people uh at least in terms of what we're shown he seems to take the children's experiences quite seriously we see him having these these kind of exchanges with their parents where he does seem to be laying things out quite frankly Mm -hmm. um and the parents are kind of giving permission in a way that seems very informed um and and you know and i don't fault the parents either you know this little kid's mom seems quite heartbroken by the process and it's not to shift blame away from nathan fielder to this kid's mom it's more to say i'm not sure anybody was to blame i think this was like a mistake that was made um with everybody acting in good faith and then they all kind of addressed it in a way that felt really satisfying to me and so all of that felt totally I, I think I was as fascinated by the show as I was by the reactions to it. Mm. I'm not going to lie. And I, I said this on Twitter, but I think people might have thought I was joking about this. But um, I didn't know who Nathan Fielder was before this discourse started. Um, and I was aware that there was a show called Nathan for You, but my ex was really into it. And when I read the description of it, I was like, this seems like the kind of thing Sean would have made me watch. So I was like, <laughs> I'm staying away from this. And um when I finally looked up who he was, I'm like, oh, I know him from so many memes. And yeah. so I was like, and and it's, I, I will say this as someone who didn't watch a second of the rehearsal. It's really, really hard to kind of follow everything from the discourse alone because I'm like, this seems just like layers upon layers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've tried to explain the premise to people and realize that I'm not sure I know what the premise is. <laughs> uh, and then Star Trek Strange New Worlds. What? Uh, so I... Again, wasn't aware there was a new Star Trek series. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there are a few. And this is the the most recent one. And um, I, the thing that has stood out f- for me and for, I think, a lot of people is just how much it feels like classic Star Trek uh, cool. by being very episodic. Like there is kind of a monster of the week or a mission of the week that's very that. kind of metaphorical. Um, and, and it just feels like this kind of nice throwback to, to old, I mean, I would say the same is true of Star Trek, um, Lower Decks, which is the animated Star Trek series that's currently playing. Mm -hmm. It it feels a little more like a Star Trek parody, a very loving Star Trek parody than a Mm -hmm. Star Trek show in some ways. Whereas Star Trek Strange New Worlds kind of feels like, uh, you know, I, I say I like the weekly rollout model. I also like the episodic model. So there's something really fun about if I miss a week, it's fine. I'll totally be able to follow next week. Um, Probably. And, and so that's been a really fun part of, uh, of, of being a Trekkie these last few years is, is suddenly this new show coming out that felt so much like old Star Trek. Super. All right, Liz, tell us what uh, one of your top shows was this year. So for me, I'm constantly behind on TV, so this was very difficult for me. <laughs> um, but uh, something that I really enjoyed this year was The Bear. It was the show um, from FX um, about, like, essentially a like world-class chef coming back to run, like, his family's restaurant. It's, like, comedy, drama sort of thing. Um, and it stars um, Jeremy Allen White from, uh, what was the show he was in? shameless i'm always like it's not skins it's the other one um so yeah shameless so that was a nice like um blast from the past but it was just everyone kept telling me to watch it and i was like okay i'll watch it fine i'll watch it and it's one of those shows that was actually surpassed the expectations set by everyone that told me to watch it the cinematography is like amazing they're 
only like almost like 35 to 40 minute episodes, but they feel both like hour long shows and also 15 minutes long, like max because of the amount of just like action and back and forth between these characters. And I thought all the characters were just so perfectly like thought out and like just developed in such perfect ways. Like it just felt like this like flash, like this just perfect show kind of thing that no, I don't think that anyone kind of really expected going into it. And it was just like, it was so refreshing <laughs> kind of thing. Like, and it's, so interesting coming from like FX, which I primarily associate with like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia and like those kind of like jokey kind of shows. And then there's this just like powerful, like there's, there's a scene in, um, I believe it's like the final episode in which, um, Jeremy Allen White speaks at a, like NA, like, um, essentially an Al-Anon meeting and, it was one of the most powerful things I've seen on TV in such a long time. And I just love when it's like those kind of like little shows that kind of come out of nowhere and you're like, oh, this is like incredible. Like you don't have like Apple behind it. You don't have Netflix behind it. You don't have HBO behind it. And it just gives you everything that you could possibly want from a TV show. And it was just like, when I finished it, I was like, okay, well, like season two, let's go. I need this right now. Mm -hmm. It was it was so good. Like, I can't recommend it enough. Have any of us here worked in a restaurant before? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. <laughs> um, so I mean, I've, I've worked in fast food that I don't think you can compare that. One thing I found really funny about the reaction to the bear was, you know, some people like very lovingly like, oh, I love this detail, you know, this back of house thing that only people who work in a restaurant can relate to. And yeah, sometimes I think people who have worked in restaurants get a little bit like overboard with like only people who have worked in restaurants can relate to this. But man, people who get mad about that are even worse. Just like, <laughs> we get it. You worked in a restaurant. It's like, yeah, they have an experience you can't relate to. Shut up. Like, let them have this experience that you can't relate to. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, Mint. What were what were your shows of choice? And sorry, because I know I took I took two uh, shows that I know, or Liz and I both took shows that I know you wanted to cover. Yeah, the the bear and the rehearsal and Severance, which Brie will get to in a bit, were like just phenomenal shows. But I want to shine a light on two long running television shows that have seen a like real resurgence of quality this year. Um, the first is Survivor. The 42nd season of Survivor aired this uh, wow. winter and spring. Jesus. Yeah. I've watched every season multiple times. It's There's a lot of this show out there. Um, and for Survivor fans, the past seven or eight years have been um, a real mixed bag of, like, the show trying new twists and trying new formats. And also the old kind of editing style feeling a little stayed. And... Mm. Um, since coming back from the pandemic, Survivor 41 introduced a bunch of new things. Not all of them worked. And they changed them in Survivor 42, along with the editing getting dramatically um, better and more modern. And so we got this incredibly well-produced season of reality TV that harkens back to, like, the real great years in Survivor's past. Um, and with the second Canadian winner uh, in a row um, with Marianne. Oh, cool. So... Yeah, if you've never given Survivor a shot before, Survivor 42 is a good place to start. It's an excellent first season of the show to watch. 
I just might because I trust your tastes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other show, uh, and this is like a very, like, maybe six episodes of the show even count for what I'm getting at here. But uh, WWE's Monday Night Raw. Um, so uh, one of the other big entertainment stories of the year is Vincent Kennedy McMahon Jr. Uh, retiring from being head of the the World Wrestling Entertainment Company uh, over um, sexual abuse allegations, uh, among many, many other things. Um, and as with Survivor fans, there was a sense that uh, Raw had gotten pretty stale over the years, that McMahon was doing things creatively that were not um, that were not keeping the product fresh. Uh, and since he's retired and someone else um, has taken up the reins of creative, the show has an energy that brought me back to wrestling fandom, um, which I, ha- I was I was a big wrestling fan when I was a kid and I stepped away for many years. And coming back this year and seeing where the show is going, uh, it's it's a great time to be a wrestling fan, is basically the point. I sometimes feel like the only bi-millennial who's not a wrestling fan, so maybe that's something I should change. Uh, I just get secondhand wrestling exposure through like half of Hockey Twitter, <laughs> which are apparently massive wrestling fans. I, I hope to one day have the kind of relationship with wrestling that I do with Harry Styles. Just like, it's nice. Um, so my two picks are um, Severance and Season 7 of Better Call Saul. However, I'm going to ask us right now, do we notice a fairly big um, big thing that was left off this list that I'm, I was going to put on my list? I was like, someone else is going to take this. Stranger Things. Eh. No one mentioned Stranger <laughs> Things. Because the season was mid. I was actually... It was, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to include it in my, like, top entertainment stories, like, going back to, like, the Duffers, like, re-editing things and yeah. being like, what does that mean for, like, the future of TV? I mean, but... I thought it was, um, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was probably the best season since the first, but that's because I really hated the second season, and the third was, like, good, not great to me. I know. I'm sorry, Vint. I, I didn't think anyone liked the second season. I love season two of Stranger Things. I think it's the best season by far, and it's been a steady wow. downward drop since then. I, I do think, though, I think everyone's a little too in love with Eddie Munson. Like, he was adorable, I guess, but I'm just like, you're telling me this person is a high school student? This this man is... <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he's older than Liz, um, the the actor. Uh, he's, he's like 29. Yeah, um... And also just like everyone like, oh, sorry, spoiler alert for Stranger Things season four, everyone being super upset that his character dies. I'm just like, it reminded me of- That's Stranger Things whole bit. You bring new characters in that people love and then they die. (laughs) That's like- (laughs) Not to be too millennial about this, but it reminded me of Clone High um, with like, (laughs) someone's going to die and it's Ponce de Leon and like, (laughs) hey man, just in case I don't see you, I love you. Ponce, you always say that. Like- (laughs) Well, I mean, you can apply the same thing to Eddie Munson constantly be like, I always run away. And it's like, hmm, I wonder what's gonna happen in like the climax of this season huh he's not gonna run away and he's going to die maybe there's there's something about those like the really kind of emotional moments that people end up being really angry about like the whole justice for barb thing in season one still kind of grates me where it's like yeah this like totally innocent person got killed and we're shocked by that that's the whole point yeah (laughs) He, welcome to the real world yeah. like i don't know what to tell you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like 
people just need to understand that is where the emotional value in the story comes from. And um, uh, yeah, I I could have a lot to say about Stranger Things, but the, the fact is once Stranger Things finishes next year when the kids are 40, I do plan on doing a peak show episode about Stranger Things. So um, yeah, my, my two picks are the final season of Better Call Saul and Severance. Um, like everyone knows Breaking Bad is like my comfort show and... Um, Better Call Saul really pulled me in in a completely different way um, because in Breaking Bad, I stopped feeling sorry for almost everyone, whereas Better Call Saul, even though these are despicable people for the most part, like you you feel so much empathy for everyone. I think also, um, and it's funny because this is going to come up in my top movies as well, but the uh, the crew does such a good job of making Bob Odenkirk look younger when they need to. Um so I think that's something to be praised. But yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would say yet that it's a better show than Breaking Bad because I like them for two very different reasons. But certainly a way better finale than Breaking Bad. Uh, and then of course the first season of Severance, uh, for which I can't wait for season two. We have no idea when season two is dropping, but uh, as a teaser, when it does, Mike Stevens and I will be doing a weekly recap show on a Patreon tier, Patreon level tier of Peak Show. Oh, nice. So that hopefully I can afford uh, better Google Hangouts. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought Severance was great. Um, I think um, Adam Scott is awesome at playing kind of a dick and a person who makes you uncomfortable. Like his character makes you so uncomfortable all the time. Um, I was a little sad that Tramel Tillman did not get a Best Supporting Actor Emmy nomination. Um, I think all the other uh, acting nominations were very well deserved. Except that I would say sometimes I, I found the way Patricia Arquette played her character was a little too um, cliche big bad. Like, I thought especially the voice she put on was very Cruella DeVille to me um, and took it too cartoony. But then sometimes when she had like her big villainous breakdown type moments, that's when I loved her a lot. But yeah, um, Tramel Tillman, um, him and and his dress pants, I, I can't wait to see for a second season. Oh, and John- I, I had never- I've oh. never seen him in anything, and I was totally blown away. I, well, I, I like, I want to see that guy in everything from now on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he's had a lot of big roles. Like, I kind of looked around his um, uh, his IMDb, and he's so good at playing like an unsettling villain that the one thing it's like, oh, it will be so because ex- he he's gonna get work after this, I'm sure. Um, it will be interesting to see if he's uh, not unsettling as like a good guy or whatever. Yeah. Um, and John Turturro and Christopher Walken actually play the most beautiful little gay couple like i think he was the john Turturro's like last moment in the last episode was kind of the moment that made me want to just cry um mm. yeah mm-hmm. all right so let's get to movies and what an awesome year for movies when i look at this list uh mint take us uh, take us away with your two favorite movies of the year yeah um There are so many to choose from, and every movie that's been picked, uh, I can't wait to hear people's thoughts because it's been a wonderful year for movies. But my favorite movie of the the year is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Um, Austin Butler uh, and Tom Hanks are just shooting for the back row the whole way through, and it is exhilarating to watch. Um, it's one of those movies that it's 159 minutes, so like it's a long, 
long movie. It's almost three hours. Mm. Uh, it doesn't feel it. Uh, it in kind of the opposite way where Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a very short movie, feels incredibly long because of how bad it is. Elvis is just consistently <laughs> enrapturing. Um, the way that Boz Lerman turns the scene of like Elvis mania when he's performing and all the teenage girls in the audience just lose their minds, turns that into mm-hmm. like a truly orgiastic scene is <laughs> it's so literal that it could be campy, but it just feels right for the moment because of how Butler's performance works. Um, it's I, I love Boz Lerman and seeing him working at the height of his powers and under he's not an American, but understanding American culture in a way that a lot of Americans don't like one of the things that this movie gets so right is the relationship between Elvis was an Elvis appreciated black culture where he was from. Um, he was connected to a lot of black musicians. He appropriated their music. That appreciation was then co-opted and codified by the music industry, by Colonel Tom Parker and other people, that you could have both at the same time and Mm -hmm. show both in a narrativized story. It just cuts right through all of the, like, is Elvis an appropriator discourse that we see online? It gets that you you have both and you need both in this story. Um, So Elvis was so good. And then uh, Jordan Peele came back for Nope. It's a Western horror film, and it's just... I feel like I can't talk about it because I don't... I'm so anti... I don't care about spoilers normally, but you just need to go in and see this movie fresh. Um, It's Mm -hmm. uh, Jordan Peele making a monster movie, understanding exactly what makes a monster movie great. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then the sibling relationship between Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer is just like no sibling relationship I've seen in film in years. It's just phenomenal filmmaking all around. My regret about Nope is that I didn't see it on a big screen. Um, You know, my, I have a local independent movie theater, but they really only, you know, they, they need to make money. So they only really play family films and Marvel (laughs) movies, Um, which I get that. I respect that, you know, it's still nice to just have the theater, but um, the one thing about Nope that I have seen in discourse that really makes me, unreasonably mad is when people say well i loved get out i liked us and i didn't like no people who have seen considered his movies like a consistent decline which bullshit to begin with but i'm also like what is with this revisionist history in which us wasn't brilliant i think i um i think get out is a very important movie i also think what i can bring to the discussion of get out and its message is very limited because i am white and so things like the significance of the sunken place and stuff i cannot relate to that and that's something that black critics can say better than me um i actually think us for me is the far more enjoyable movie um and i i remember when us came out and some people seemed to be upset that there wasn't like a quote-unquote racism message to the movie. And it's like, mm-hmm. first of all, black filmmakers can make movies that aren't about racism. And, like, why can't Lupita Nyong'o just be a scream queen? Why does it always have to be about black trauma? And that's also what I like about Nope, is that, like, why can't this just be a monster movie that centers black characters and Asian characters? So, um, I... It's I, also... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but... I, I was I just ranting. It, so, something interesting on that note, too, is that us and nope are totally like wrapped up in conversations of race uh, yes like fairly overt ways but they're about so like i I don't want to pretend that get out isn't about so many things because it is but get out is a much more kind of uh 
linear and straightforward message. Like you kind of get what it's saying to you after watching it once, I think. Ross and Nope are extremely allegorical. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think allegorical on like so many different levels. that I think is what, you know, I think us is probably my favorite of the Same. three still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said that recently and somebody said, Whoa, hot take. And I, and I went back and looked and, and realized that like, no, you're right. It, it got great reviews when it came out. It was mm-hmm. a huge hit. Like it, it was totally a success, but we have kind of rewritten it as yeah. Peel is the, is the get out guy. Yeah. Um, but it's like, yeah. Oh, his, his think... movies are all huge hits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think Peel got kind of like, um, put in a box of like you make like um like societal commentary specifically about race because get out was so um digestible specifically like for white audiences like it's so easy to be like oh yeah they're bad like (laughs) these are bad white people kind of thing while um us and um nope have so many layers to them that you can just like spend and and you can do the same thing with get out like people are still doing like breaking down like oh did you notice this and get out and everyone's like holy shit like but like nope you can just like continuously like tear like it's like an onion you can just kind of continuously it has layers um (laughs) now fred just before we get to your favorite movie i think it was you who posted uh my favorite five minute meme of the year which was the girl yelling at the guy in the concert uh talking about clearly about Shyamalan about how he doesn't actually have a lot of twists like and that like a lot of Shyamalan's they're just endings that's not a twist um yeah I was trying to think, what is an example of a movie with a great ending twist? And Us, or Us is probably my favorite modern twist ending. Yeah, that yeah. was a wonderful twist ending. And actually, uh, since you you were talking about uh, Orphan earlier, uh, that's that's another great example of a of a, a modern twist ending. But. Although I wouldn't say that was a twist ending. That was a twist mid, but we'll get to that. So Fred, right? Yes, <laughs> your your two picks for movies of the year. One of these, yeah, I so, don't know this. I don't know the second movie you had listed, so I'm excited to hear that's about why it. I included yeah. it. Actually, yeah. Um, well, why don't we start there? So, okay. Kimmy was one of my favorite movies of the year so far, and it's an HBO Max original movie. Oh. And uh, it's by Steven Soderbergh, and so of course it got buried as his last <laughs> like five five <laughs> movies have. Like he's he's done a. I think this is his third HBO Max original movie, and nobody has heard of any of the three movies. And it's bananas every time I say they're my favorite movies of the year. People are like. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Um, and Kimmy is this really kind of small scale sort of like Hitchcockian thriller uh, where um, Zoe Kravitz plays this kind of shut in in the early days of the pandemic of lockdown in Seattle. She works for a big tech company. She's kind of like the 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 human behind a Siri like kind of uh, smart home device. So whenever your smart home oh, device... Wow doesn't understand what you're asking for it's sort of filtered over to a human operator and in this case it's zoe kravitz who at some point thinks she's heard somebody being murdered through the recording of this smart home device and so the film is this kind of agoraphobic woman who's who's been able to work from home during the early days of the pandemic kind of venturing out into the world to try to uh figure out what happened did somebody actually get murdered and if so is the company she works for covering it up? Can they help her get to the bottom of it? And it's just this really like wonderfully made tight little low budget thriller and probably the best depiction of early lockdown that I've seen in any media so far. Um, it, it like really captures that energy of the the early day. I mean, it's Seattle and I've, my only experience of COVID has been Canadian, but 
uh, it, it kind of <laughs> captures the essence of like what we were all feeling in those early days, I think, in a way that, that was really brilliant. Wow. I, I will definitely look this up. This sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Um, the other film that uh, that really spoke to me quite a bit that, that I liked quite a bit when I saw it first, but I've just been thinking of it of it nonstop ever since was Bodies, 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 mm-hmm. um, which I kind of went in having this fear that it was just going to be dunking on Gen Z. Uh, and I was like, oh, I don't want to be this 35 year old guy going to see a movie where I'm just like laughing at the kids and, and their woke politics or whatever. <laughs> um, and I ended up really enjoying it. And um thinking a lot so there was an interview with john waters a little while back where he was asked about kind of the kids today mm-hmm. and one thing he i remember him saying was uh that he worries that they don't have a sense of humor about themselves uh and that every every movement needs to have a sense of humor about itself and like i'm not sure i agreed with him to begin with but this film felt like a really great counterexample of mm-hmm. this kind of very gen z text that that seems to kind of love what it's parodying like it's these kind of young privileged people who use the language of social justice uh that we see on twitter every day Mm -hmm. and kind of weaponize it against each other uh wrapped up in a kind of a murder mystery slasher film um and it you know it, it never really feels like it's going so far as to make fun of an entire generation it even kind of i think very cleverly includes this gen x character played by lee pace uh who is engaging in the exact same stuff. He's got <laughs> the, the face Liz like... is making. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if you put Lee Pace into a movie, I'm going to love it, obviously. Um, but he's got this kind of Gen X version of that sort of, uh, the, the, the use of, of a very specific generational language. You know, he's got the kind of, uh, it is what it is, the best defense is a good offense kind of stuff that he kind of mindlessly repeats again and again. And it kind of gives you that, that, same vibe as these younger characters he's with um so yeah it was a terrific little slasher film that also just felt like a wonderfully of its time kind of kind of celebration slash mockery of of our of our current moment yeah i i love stuff that is like i didn't include this in mine but like um and this was a very early release, but um, the Fallout uh, from uh, which I think is also an HBO Max original. Like there are actually some really, really thoughtful portrayals of Gen Z that are very, very self-aware and not super up its own ass either. And um, I don't know. I just hate to be one of those crusty old millennials that is just bitching about the kids today. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't let me become that person. Uh, <laughs> all right, Liz, uh, what were some of your faves this year? Um, so we've already discussed it, but Prey is like, it was so good. And I am so mad that it did not get a theatrical release God, yeah. because it is such a perfect movie for a theater. And the other movie I'm going to talk about is also a perfect movie for a theater. And you can um, like, but Prey, I just thought was so perfectly thought out um, and Again, I was mad because no theatrical release. I'd barely heard anything about it. The only reason I heard about Prey is because my friend came to visit and was like, have you seen Prey? We need to watch Prey. And I was like, okay, (laughs) sure, why not? Um, But I thought it was such a really great take because we 
gets so many sequels and remakes in this like current era current time of like kind of movies particularly and i thought it was such an interesting take on such a like well-known story like the predator series Mm -hmm. and also as someone who's only seen like the original predator movie i haven't seen the rest of them I felt like it was something that, yeah, I won't go looking for them to make sure that it's complete. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, But it felt like something that worked so well with the original while still being an individual take on this kind of like this, this IP. Um, And I, I thought it was really great how they had these kind of, they had like subtle moments that like referenced the first predator of like specific lines that were said and like the french had like cigars and everything like that and then i also just thought it was such a like a lot of times you get movies that try and incorporate incorporate cultures um into it to try and appear like diverse or like to go back to kind of like that like woke social justice language like they want to appear like they're like woke and everything but the Sorry, gift bait. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the ways in which Prey, like, you can tell that the director and the screenwriters and everything wanted to work, like, specifically with, I believe it was the Kamachi tribe, make sure that, like, like there's a full, like, Kamachi version with their language, and it's not, like, dubbed, like, the old, like, kind of Japanese karate movies where it's so obviously, like, dubbed over, like they made a legit like almost second movie in which it is their language it is and i just thought it was such like a touching way to do that as opposed to like the way that you like kind of shoehorn in like stuff um in other uh, movies so i thought prey was outstanding and i will always be mad that it didn't get a theatrical mm-hmm. release but to go to my other movie which got a theatrical de- release through the hard work of Tom Cruise, <laughs> Top Gun Maverick is pure, pure, pure propaganda. But it is the best propaganda that I have ever seen in my life. It was just, I, uh, Tom Cruise is its own thing. Tom Cruise is its own entity. But I am so thankful that Tom Cruise worked so hard to make Top Gun Maverick what it was and to make Top Gun Maverick in theaters. Because that's the only way that we should all appreciate. Like, my friend and I went to see it and we were joking. We went on the 4th of July, which <laughs> feels just like a bit. <laughs> but we were joking and then you have Tom Cruise like pop up on the screen before the movie starts, like thanking you for coming back to the movies. And you're like, Jesus Christ, Tom, like relax. Like Tom Cruise jump scare. By the end of the movie, my friend cried several times. He got choked up by the relationships of it all. And I was cheering. There's like the final bit where someone comes in to kind of save the day. And I fully was like fist pumping in my seat. And I have just, I haven't had a theater experience like that in so long and it was so nice like it felt like a return to normal kind of thing and like not to be one of those people that's just like oh we need to return to the theaters and the the way in which movies are supposed to be shown but like that's the way Top Gun was supposed to be yeah, shown movie magic and it's also yeah. exactly and it's it's nice because it's not just like oh they got you with like the specific like they knew what boxes to check like it's actually 
a good movie, in my opinion. Like, I thought that the way, like, waiting 30 years to do this sequel was absolutely the right choice by everyone involved. Like, I thought they nailed, like, all of the relationships, all the throwbacks, all the, the, the story of it all. Like, sure, it's still Top Gun. It's like, oh, wow, Fast Planes. But, like, it made sense and it was worth seeing like it's not like it's like oh they threw a sequel together and like i guess i'll see it because it's top gun it's like no like tom cruise put his blood sweat and tears into this and i it was just i i can't get over how good it was yeah. <laughs> like i and it feels like silly because it's like i have such passion for this movie that is top gun but like it's perfect it is a perfect film I, my my biggest silly feeling with that film is like i remember sitting in the theater there's like a training simulation like the mastery of the film in elevating the stakes of something that shouldn't matter at all it's a yeah. training simulation i was literally on the edge of my seat leaning forward watching it like tense holding my breath and when it gets to the end, the entire crowd just like erupted, cheering, cheering for what yeah. what wasn't even anything. It was a simulation. <laughs> it's like, literally, this is, yeah, this is and really everyone, magic. Like, totally. <laughs> and everyone knows like the stakes of the movie. Like yeah. we, we know that what is going to happen. We've, we've seen Top Gun, uh, the original. <laughs> we know the like, how this is plotted out. We know what's going to happen, but we're all just sitting there just like, oh my God, Tom, do it. And like, I thought that, I keep mentioning Tom Cruise, but the rest of the casting was amazing. Like, I I thought Glenn Powell was just like, chef's kiss. Um, sorry, I have like total name blindness this morning, but Rooster. Miles Teller. Um, Miles Teller. Yes. He was just, like, they all... It's one of those things where when you have everyone commit to the bit, it it's outstanding and everyone committed to the bit. And Miles Teller got like blood poisoning from jet fuel. And then Tom Cruise said, I was born with jet fuel in my veins. And you're like, what the fuck? Liz, I love the idea of you uh, getting all jacked up on 4th of July to go see this because all I can think is Liz goes America all over everyone's ass. Literally me in the like in the seats, just like a kick some ass. Um, so very quickly, my two kind of movies of the year. I went for more popcorny stuff because you guys uh, went for the good stuff with a lot of discourse about it. Uh, I'll first shout out Jackass Forever, which came out at the very beginning of the year. Um, I will say, don't look up the stuff about Bam Margera and where he currently stands with the Jackass guys. That'll just make you sad. Um, but I thought it was great because it's a very, like, the writing's on the wall. I mean, Johnny Knoxville has even said he's not planning on doing another Jackass. Um, he... I think he had like a hemorrhage or something from uh, one of the one of the stunts. I'm surprised more of those guys are still standing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I liked also the new additions to the cast. Um, it was a fantastic uh, opening sequence. And I love the P.K. Subban was in it. So it was and considering, you know, January was when, you know, Omicron hit and everyone was kind of especially in Canada. We're like, oh, my God, we're back to square one, back to super lockdown again. It felt really um it was such a comfort movie that was needed during the time because it made me feel 15 again. And surprisingly, like, I know you wouldn't know what to look at me, but I didn't mind being a teenager. So um, it was uh, it was a great movie for fun. And then uh, recent release, Orphan First Kill. Oh, my God. I loved that movie. Um, much like Bob Odenkirk, um, Isabel Furman was made to actually like the 
The effects on her looking younger were pretty darn good. Um, Julia Stiles was great in it. Um, like, kind of, ha- like, she she understood the assignment, uh, what was needed. Like, she is just a great kind of anti-villain, I guess you would say. Um, and it's kind of like the way everyone reacted when they saw the first trailer for Boslerman's Elvis, the way everyone was like, this looks bonkers. I like it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I loved Orphan First Kill. Um, yeah. Bonkers, bonkers in a way that fits so well with that casting choice too, I think. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know how much we want to spoil the original Orphan, but uh, having her The movie from 2009? 20... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for anybody who hasn't seen it, yeah, having having a 25-year-old playing that character three years before the events of Orphan, uh, she's like, what, seven in the sequel or prequel? No, she's um, still like a, pre- t- uh, a pre-teen. She's supposed to be like 11 or so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think um, the implication is that this happens right before Orphan. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so having having her as a 25-year-old after the revelations of the first film, I think, was was such a great touch. And, and yeah, everybody's kind of dialed into 11 in a way that I think makes the film work so well. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta commit to the bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we are going to turn it to Liz now with uh, best uh, album, musical, musical album release of the year. <laughs> so it's actually really funny because in the doc, Brie was like, I'm not going to like include these two specific albums because I'll just say, I like them. And I was like, mm. I like these a lot, so let me pick you just did. these two. Um, so first off, Harry's House, uh, Harry's uh, Harry Styles' third uh, album. I I really like when you can see an artist get to where they want to be. Like I love when you can see a progression because, like specifically with Harry Styles coming from like huge boy band has very specific expectations on him has his first album that is like the first single was like a seven minute kind of rock ballad it every he had kind of everything on that album second album is a little more cohesive um is centered around like a specific kind of feeling and but there's still kind of like here and there you're like oh you sound like you want to do these kind of specific styles but you still don't know what you're doing it feels like Harry's house, he knows the kind of music he wants. It had a very like 80s synth pop vibe. Mm. Um, very, the best way I can describe it is just like capital V vibes kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like a very, um, like Peter Gabriel was kind of the main kind of reference point that a lot of people made with it. Like that kind of. Oh, that's a great comparison. Yeah. Like, uh, and it's actually really interesting. He did like a cover of Sledgehammer. Um, a couple of years ago on like uh, the Howard Stern show so it's kind of like showing that a connection with like the music and everything like that that he's had kind of throughout Mm -hmm. so it's always really nice to see um, when you end up at a specific place and you're comfortable in this place and this is where you want to be Mm -hmm. so it's always especially like as a fan of an artist you always want to see them kind of reach where they want to be Um, and then the other album that I have not stopped listening to since it came out and someone actually i can't remember who it was but someone wrote like a a cute little like um 
um, article for like the New Yorker or something like that. Like, why can't I stop listening to Renaissance? What does this bitch put in it? (laughs) But Beyonce's Renaissance is just pure. uh, It's perfection. It's an album that is just such a perfect example of what an album can be. Every single song links together, like flows into each other. If you're listening to it on shuffle, then you're not getting the full experience. And kind of going back to the Jordan Peele of it all and how he has like these kind of like super layered texts that have so much to them and so much you can unpack with them. Renaissance is exactly that. Like you can break down the different it's it's a very um, like kind of disco-y dance, ballroom, Vogue kind of album. Mm-hmm. And you can break down the different um, samples she's using and the references she's making and the different um, kind of like what she's experimenting with the different, like there's so much in this album that you can break down and understand her influences and who she's paying respects to. And it's just, it's art. Like it is just pure concept art and seeing something come full fledged in like the exact way, you know, that she wanted it to be received kind of thing. And it's, it's really enjoyable. And it's just, it's, it's really beautiful actually. (laughs) When, especially you consider like, the 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 flowers that are be get, getting uh, being given to like a lot of like Vogue artists and kind of like gay icons of the past that have not received those flowers. It's 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 wonderful. Mm. Who here likes uh, listening to Break My Soul when they're taking a walk, and it instantly like affects the <laughs> tempo of their walk. As soon as Break My Soul came out, I listened to it like on repeat. I had Ellie just staring at me like again. It's coming again. And it's... For those of you who are not aware, Ellie is a dog. Yes. (laughs) And I I think it's, like, also perfect because when Break My Soul first came out, everyone was like, okay, this is, like, what she's going for with the album. Interesting. I enjoy it. Okay. But once you hear it in the album and you have that buildup from the first few songs and then that into Break My Soul, it's just like, oh, oh my God, this is perfect. And it's just such a completely different experience. And I think that's that's like true art when you can do that. Hmm. All right, uh, Mint, what were your music picks? Yeah. Um, so two records. Uh, one is one of, beside Renaissance, the other like, most anticipated album of the year so far, I think, was Kendrick's Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, Kendrick Lamar's record, um, which I was, I, I, it was super highly anticipated for me, and I was prepared to be disappointed because after the career that Kendrick has had, like, when's he gonna miss? And I think a lot of people thought this was his miss record. Um, but the, uh, I, I want to highlight like two songs in particular, um, We Cry Together and Auntie Diaries, um, two of the more controversial songs on the record, but also the ones that show um, the level at which uh, Kendrick thinks about music dramatically, um, just show that he's still, he's still developing as an artist. He's still pushing himself to do new and interesting and um, provocative, but not in the South Park sense, but provocative in the like, trying to push the medium forward. Um, 
gets the people exactly. Um, and then the other one, and this one's more just like near and dear to my heart, uh, is one of the first records of the year, The Weekend's Dawn FM. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that anyone who has been on late night car rides anywhere in North America will have some of the the feelings uh, that of the radio that this album is giving. But there really is something mm-hmm. particular to a Southern Ontario driving along the 401 at night thing going on on this record. Um, it feels both like a love mm-hmm. letter to Toronto and the GTA and like th- this area, um, while also just having, um, in a similar uh, way to Harry's house, uh, an 80s, a positive nostalgia for the 80s, uh, a sense of the, like this is a mood, this is a style, this is a genre that we didn't get to live, but we still kind of want to. Um, and mm. so it's not nostalgia as in, like, you know, pining for a lost past. It's like, let's try and build that thing here and what would it look like now? Uh, and similarly to Harry's House, it's uh, it's doing that kind of really thoughtful genre-defining work. Um, and... Take my breath, like, I've said it a bunch of times, but I really wish that I was still young enough and, like, energetic enough to dance to that at Phil's in Waterloo. Like, that's, <laughs> I, I would give anything. I know I'm too old for it, but that song would kill at Phil's Granson's place. It really would. I don't think uh, our, our dear friends, Liz and Fred, don't know uh, what Phil's is. So to catch you up, Phil's, um, I think it had like a typical $5 cover, but most of the drinks uh, there were between 2 to $3. 225 um, for a shot. At least. Yep. Yeah, and uh, 250 domestic beer. Um, all bars, all clubs are gross, really. And I try not to be snobby about it, but it feels like you cover your drink because the dust mites on the ceiling might fall into it. It's a very, like, even with the music pounding, you can hear as you lift your feet because of how sticky the floor is and you know how all bars legally have to serve food they will give you like a frozen pizza pocket if you give them enough money uh and you have to like i i feel like if i recall you have to take it to the back to microwave it um yeah i've i've blacked out and ended up in the back room of phil's or out out the back entrance of phil's and i'm like how did i get here um anyway phil's digression (laughs) glad to know it survived the pandemic fred uh you uh you have some less than conventional music picks from 2022 yeah yeah i have a confession like i i've uh i'm becoming an old guy who doesn't listen to new music enough anymore. And I, need to, I need to remedy that but i've just been listening to old things that uh that i i used to love i've been revisiting my teen years and listening to like jimmy e world oh that's awesome um, but i did recently finally start listening to phoebe bridgers who i had heard so much about and realized i've heard her playing on radios all over the place and had never made the connection that that's who she was so uh, mm-hmm. yeah my my favorite album of 2022 so far is 2017's uh, stranger in the alps <laughs> her her debut album yeah uh which yeah i find uh her voice is absolutely stunningly beautiful uh and uh she sings just these kind of heartbreaking songs that still have this kind of like i i want to say playfulness there's something kind of at times cheeky yeah yeah almost almost joking um and and it's yeah it, it it's very moving in a lot of ways and so i've been really enjoying uh listening to her her two albums but particularly the debut album 
Yeah. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with revisiting uh, revisiting old music. It's honestly, and I don't know if, uh, I, I'll blame my mental health for this, but it's actually probably one of the few things that is legitimate laziness and not just mental health. Um, I It takes a lot for me to check out new music. It really does. I don't know why. And I have a feeling it's just like, oh, fuck, I'm going to develop feelings about this. There's going to be discourse. Um, <laughs> actually, before I, I'm... Uh, I'm trying to eliminate digressions, but I do need to digress to because <laughs> I pulled up my phone while uh, we were waiting to get on our second call. I'm calling out friend of the show, Mike Stevens, for this tweet. I got so drunk last night, I briefly contemplated listening to some Eminem. <laughs> Love that for you, Mike. Um, the, you know, top music of uh, 20, 2022. Um, no, um, one of my favorite bands from high school did release new music this year, and that was Alexis on Fire. It was super anticipated. I think they were the last concert I saw in 2019, because I barely see live music uh, before the lockdown. Uh, their, re their new releases leading up to that point were really awesome. Um, I've kind of like re, like kind of, um, looked back at their um, at their discography and revisited how I view it. I used to hate Old Crow's Young Cardinals. Now I actually believe it's their second best album because I do believe Otherness is their best album yet. Um, the opening to the first track, Committed to the Con, is such a like, oh yeah, like it is the perfect album opener. Kind of like I would say music for a sushi restaurant is the same. Like it just like, okay, we're priming you for what you're in for. And the fact that the first lyric on the album is, hey, you get the fuck off my lawn is just, that's charming <laughs> to me. Um, it's it's my running album. Um, it is, it's really easy for Screamo, as they called it, to feel dated and very stuck in the 2000s. And this is not that. And it's, um, it is the screaming hard rock alternative for 2022. Um, I love the album artwork as well. There's something about it that feels just a little queer. And so I really like that. And then um, an artist that I've gotten into more recently, Kurt Vile, he had an album come out, uh, Watch My Moves. I love everything about Kurt Vile's music. I don't know a lot about him as a man, um, but um, I feel like his music, I would say it reminds me of where I grew up because it feels rustic, but not romantic. It just, there's a, a surliness to it that I really, really love. And so I've been enjoying getting into him and I really, really like Watch My Moves. Um, so now uh, we're gonna, <laughs> because all of us are fans of rewatches and revisits, I wanna talk about what we've loved revisiting. So Fred, what are some things that you looked at with fresh eyes this year? Uh, one of my favorites was uh, I revisited Moneyball while on a flight home from Montreal. Um, <laughs> I hadn't watched it in years and I, I remembered vaguely quite liking it, but uh, it kind of blew me away rewatching it just how good it was. Um, a movie about baseball and math uh, co-written by Aaron Zorkin uh, has <laughs> no right to be as good as Moneyball is. Um, it's like, it, it, yeah, it draws you in right away. Everything about it. I think one of the things that I really liked about it was uh, it makes the the math side of it, the kind of statistics of, of basically putting together a baseball team using statistics and creating a team of players who seem like an unlikely winning team. Uh, it, it makes all of that very accessible by basically shifting the focus to the human stories of the people who are basically fighting for this new system. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually reminding me of the movie Margin Call uh, when I was watching it, which kind of does a similar thing like this 
great movie about the the 2008 financial crash where so often you have these characters just looking at computer screens that you can't see and not really describing what they see in any great detail they're just kind of explaining that like we're fucked everything is (laughs) fucked um and and so you kind of get around how boring it is to just show spreadsheets on a movie screen um by having it just be this like deeply human story uh also moneyball probably chris pratt's best performance for me Mm -hmm. um that should have been the start of a very different direction for his career before he became action star chris pratt (laughs) uh so that there's kind of a what could have been element to it as well Mm -hmm. so that was one of my favorite rewatches uh and the other is just one that i've watched a million times uh, probably a perfect film uh tremors hard agree beautiful buddy comedy great creature feature um really tight little cast of characters kind of you know tiny little community of people just surviving this monster attack uh i don't i don't think i can name a flaw it it holds up so perfectly well (laughs) i agree so much on that um yeah probably something i should revisit you know it's a lot it's a long weekend what else am i gonna do um yeah all right mint what were some of your rewatches so when i was sick with covid back in march um Mm. i was finally able to binge a bunch of TV for the first time in a long time. And so I finally... Oh, yeah, you mentioned this. I finally got around to finishing a show that I loved when it was first airing and that I kept myself from watching the final season because I didn't want it to end, which was The Americans. Um, the show about uh, Soviet spies living undercover as your average white picket fence family in Washington, D.C. Um, Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese are phenomenal in the show and... If you want a really good cry, like get to the end of season six because it will make you sob. It's um, it, it made me as sad as I knew it would back when I decided not to watch it in 2017. But watching the show through and finally finishing the show, um, it really is one of the best shows of the last decade and people need to talk about it more. Um, the other thing, uh, and we're going into new territory here on Peak Show, um, uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, a friend of mine who bought the game at the beginning of COVID and never played it has just started in the past month. And her talking it's about so it, stunning. Her talking about it has brought me back to it. And I play Breath of the Wild as half mountain climbing simulator, half Metal Gear Solid stealth <laughs> game. Like, I'm not good at actually fighting, but if I find the high ground, I can shoot enemies and get what I want anyways. Um, but the the scope of that world is so unbelievable, even now. Like, it still looks great six years later. And that's kind of shocking for a video game um, for me. And for it to still feel fresh to play it over again. And this will be my third time playing it through. Um, There's a sequel coming out, isn't it? There is a sequel coming out next year. I am <laughs> so excited. So yeah, those are my two Same here. my two re- rewatches, replays for this year. Revisits. All right, Liz, tell us about your biggest revisit of the year. So I restarted Friday Night Lights, the... Um, TV series because there are several Friday Night Lights entities. Uh, I'm also like halfway through the rereading the book. Um, I haven't rewatched the movie, but maybe that will come soon. It is a long weekend, so um, maybe. But Friday Night Lights to me, it's one of those shows that I watch almost like yearly kind of thing. It's one of those kind of like comfort shows that you just constantly revisit. It's and my Breaking Bad. 
<laughs> every single the two genders every single time <laughs> i'm just blown away by how good second season writers strike being ignored although that is just a fun ride within itself and and also something that's so fun to look back on on being like oh wow like tv was so affected by this thing um that i didn't really have a grasp of at that time it's just one of those shows that like it feels so homey and it feels still so relevant um in its time when you consider like how much the, the human relationships are focused on. There's still like the episodes that stand out that you're like, oh yeah, this was definitely written in like Bush era America and you're considered like a liberal bastion right now because you are, are, are of these opinions that um, you don't care if this person is gay. You just don't want to hear about it. And you're like, oh, that's okay, Coach Taylor. You're fine. But like, some of Friday Night Lights is so the the first season specifically is something that I constantly tell people to watch at least like you don't have to continue you just have to watch the first season because I think the first season of Friday Night Lights is some of the best TV that's just ever been made and specifically the pilot is just like exceptional TV creation and just setting up a story and setting up these these families and these characters and these livelihoods and I I just love it and I would I just love I I love it I love it it's perfect to me. <laughs> that was our group watch show in my um, my residence because um, I was in an apartment style. Uh, it mm -hmm. was it's funny it was four single rooms and then a common like apartment area but two out of the four single rooms they put bunk beds in so there were six of us <laughs> in this pretty small space um and the only thing we agreed on was friday night lights um so that it's was just, great it's it, it unites everyone <laughs> it's and it, 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 it is, is. So, and i'm like, not even look, a football fan like yeah well that's the thing like that's what i constantly tell people because they're like a football show and I was like it's so much more like I become that person I was like it's so much more and so it's the characters but it's it's such it's just wonderful I love it so much it's like why we like the Toronto Maple Leafs the characters yeah um, exactly speaking of teams put together on statistics um <laughs> so um mine um this is a bit of a left field one because other than um I mean everyone knows I love the babysitters club as a child um I have, as an adult, only read one quote-unquote chiclet, chiclet series, chiclets, um, and that's the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants series, and I reread that, including the fifth book that's kind of considered the sequel, uh, Sisterhood Everlasting, and um, if I know you guys have all talked about stuff that holds up. Um, those books actually really do not hold up at all. Um, not for reasons that, well, I mean, there is one element of the sequel that aged extremely poorly, but even at the time it felt really tacky, which is the fifth book is incredibly anti-abortion. Like uh, the character of Bridget uh, discovers at Planned Parenthood that she's pregnant. And at first she wants an abortion and this angelic nurse she literally describes as being angelic is like well you know you can but you really should talk to your boyfriend about it and um you know maybe like sleep on it a little bit and you know well make the it, it's really hard on your heart it's the hardest decision you'll ever make and then 
toward the end, she starts talking about like, how could she have ever thought like, oh, Bridget was so disgusted with herself that she could have ever thought to do that. And it wasn't a thing. It was a person. And I'm just like, whoa. And even like, um, you know, the beyond that, the character of Carmen kind of goes through this thing where, you know, at first at the beginning of the book, she's living with her fiance who doesn't want kids and she doesn't want kids. And toward the end of the book, she's like, oh, what kind of person wouldn't want kids? I'm like, this is really trad this is really really trad um other than that i think the reason why it just doesn't hold up is because i don't find any of the characters likable and not in that kind of culture war like holding caulfield problematic kind of way um you know not everyone needs to be like it's it's fine for characters to be a little bratty especially because these are teenage girl characters um it's that so much of the books are spent with them whining about things that could change if they communicated. And there are only so many, like I can, that makes sense. That's human nature for one book, but that's four book, five books of that. Um, and I'm just like, oh, I no longer feel sorry for these characters. Like they are incredibly frustrating characters. And I'm just like, I don't think these characters are likable enough to carry through five books. Um, like spoiler alert. Um, I kind of, you know, no wonder the author was like, well, what can I do with them? Oh, I can kill one of them. Like it's the, there's not much about, about these characters that is, um, I guess likable is not the right word compelling. Is, is the word. So those really work well when you're a teenager, but as an adult, you're just like, oh, I'm annoyed. I'm super annoyed. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, uh, one one that I will say, uh, a reread that did hold up because this came up in our David Fincher episode when we were talking about young Kristen Stewart in Panic Room. I reread Speak because uh, Kristen Stewart plays the lead in the movie version. One of the few examples, actually, of a character being played in a movie by someone younger than, like, I think Kristen Stewart was, like, 12 playing 14 or so in that, um, which was actually really works because the person she's playing is very stunted and very, like, super introverted. But Speak is such a great, uh, great novel. Um, even it's a quick read. Um, even as an adult, I think most people would benefit from reading about it, reading it. And I'll say this, it talks about the effects of trauma and the way that the ways that trauma presents itself, um, maybe less than conventionally. And it was talking about that back in 1999 before all anyone talked about was trauma in uh, in a lot of pop culture. So I, th I think it's it's fantastic. I'm going to skip over our Murphy's Law section to keep it tight, and we're going to go right to the lightning round. Now, I'm all about unconventional lightning rounds these days, so what I'm doing with this is I want you to give me three words to associate with each of the following 2022 discourses, and we're going to go in the order of Liz, Fred, Mint, Brie. So get get your engines ready, fellas and, uh, fellas and pals. Okay, the Oscar slap. Okay. <laughs> um, deserved, tiring, exhausting. <laughs> Fred. Surprising, overhyped, hypocrites. <laughs> uh, Mint. Not a big deal. <laughs> uh, sometimes violence good. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm so excited for Liz's answer for this. Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez getting married again. Beautiful, nostalgic. Romantic. Fred. Cute, hopeful, romantic. <laughs> Mint. Good for them. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I put down uh, emotional support, Jennifer. 
Um, <laughs> it's that one picture of them where he's like smiling, and then the second he's the picture's done, he's just. Oh. <laughs> I relate. Very gone girl. <laughs> um, Bad girl's cancellation. Why not Flash? <laughs> Fred. Bizarre, fascinating, frustrating. Mint. Sorry, I'm still stuck on what Liz said. That was great. Um, uh, <laughs> apocalyptic. Just one word. Apocalyptic. That's great. Um, poor Brendan Fraser is mine. Um, Netflix potentially introducing ads. I have cable. <laughs> uh, I have inevitable, unremarkable, and fine. Mm-hmm. Mint. The more things change. Um... Potential silver lining is mine. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's latest breakup. Hilarious. Exceptional. <laughs> Anticipated. Uh, reset the clock. <laughs> Mint. Inevitable, but cringe. <laughs> um, no more jokes. <laughs> I've seen too many. Um... Quiet quitting. Uh, <laughs> um, what was it? Working my contract. <laughs> Fred. Uh, narky, normal, and necessary. Oh, I love the alliteration. alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mint. Work to rule. Yes, thank you. Okay, so I originally had work to rule, so I will go with my second choice. Uh, quit loudly, suckers. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, John Hinckley on Twitter. Not familiar W oh. concept. <laughs> I meant to look it up before, and then I was busy last night. <laughs> Same mine. right now. <laughs> yeah, John John Hinckley's on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Failed presidential assassin John Hinckley. <laughs> All right, so Fred, you, you don't have one? Yeah, also totally unfamiliar. Mint. Good for her. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> A hero? A hero? <laughs> <laughs> um, new fave account. <laughs> and finally, number eight, Leah Michelle can't read. <laughs> it's true, losers. <laughs> <laughs> Fred. Uh, hilarious, uh, fascinating, believable. <laughs> uh, Mint. I don't have one for this one. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, mine is keeps on giving. Uh, because I wrote this before her statement yesterday. About, like, <laughs> I went to Glee every day. I read my lines. <laughs> like, or, no, no, I knew my I lines. I knew my lines. Yeah. <laughs> A- answer the question, Leah. <laughs> My, I can definitely read. I knew my, or my, I knew my line shirt is certainly raising a lot of questions already answered by my shirt. Oh God, I think that might be my favorite one because it's like a great example of a thing that this, not to not to drop the rules, this isn't actually a thing anyone. Believes. It's kind of like eating Tide Pods. This yeah. isn't actually a thing people believe. It's like the Avril Living body double thing. It's just a fucking joke that people were mm-hmm. enjoying and someone decided to write an, write an article about it and pretend it's a legitimate thing. 
and now it's gotten real. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it, it's wonderfully harmless. I mm-hmm. think, like, yeah. like the Avril Lavigne one. It's like this. It's so fake and silly that it's like, uh, who cares? Let's just have fun with it. <laughs> it's it's frustrating when um, celebrity writers bring these things to the attention of the celebrity in which they're about. Because um, a wonderful podcast I listen to, not Peak Show, second to Peak Show. You listen to um, another podcast? I know, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, Who Weekly, they they talk about celebrities. And they, on one of their Patreon episodes, they were talking about how when Chris Pratt acknowledged the like, worst Chris decision. And it's like, no, this is our silly little thing. You have billions of dollars. Go off and do be happy with your money let us have this silly little thing that does not matter in the grand scheme of things and it's the same thing it's like no leah michelle go be on broadway enjoy your life do not engage in my silly little joke about your reading level that's yeah it's like getting mad at bad reviews it's like those weren't written for you exactly (laughs) the the kind of social contract that you sign when you become a celebrity is not just like lack of privacy or whatever it's also you no longer get to be part of this club yeah. that has these little jokes. Mm-hmm. You that is the trade-off for money and fame. Like yeah. we it's it's kind of like, you know, you you get your own fancy luxury car, you no longer get to be the part of the gang that hangs out on the bus. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you don't get our bussy inside jokes. Yeah. Uh so before we say goodbye, we're going to uh uh, kind of in one foul swoop, say uh, where you can be found and followed online or any projects of yours that we can follow and add in one thing you're looking forward to in either 2023 or the last little bit of 2022. So let's start with Mint. Yeah, um, I'm I'm back on Twitter after quite a hiatus. Um, uh, my most recent retweet is something related to the Leah Michelle thing. It's the best meme of it I've seen so far. So go find uh, at Mintiford, M-Y-N-T-A-F-O-R-D. Um, and the thing I'm looking forward to most next year, already mentioned, a sequel to Breath of the Wild. I just, I need it now. Give it to me. Hell yeah, friend. All right, Fred. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I'm at F.A. Blickert. Uh, that's F-A-B-L-I-C-H-E-R-T. Uh, and you can find my writing currently at androidauthority.com. Uh, and you can find my book, Extra Salty, wherever books are sold. Um, and what am I most excited about? I'm really stoked for seasons two of both Chucky and uh, Yellow Jackets. And I'm really excited for M. Night Shyamalan's next film, uh, A Knock at the Cabin, I think it's called. Uh, it's so. an adaptation of a really great novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's his first queer film as well. A uh, wonderful little little uh, home invasion movie based in a cabin uh, that should be coming out early next year. So I'm very excited for that. Good, good for M. Night. All right, Liz. Uh, yeah, you can. I have never left Twitter and I never will. Uh, <laughs> you can find me um, at yeah, no, for sure. Uh, yeah, spelled Y A. Uh, also, as we have um, a hockey season coming upon us in brackets threatening, uh, real good pros will be returning. Um, so that's the podcast I do with my lovely friend Helen and um, the lovely Emily. Um, you can find us um, uh, wherever you get podcasts at. Uh, real good pros um that's good with the you i have an occasional newsletter that you can find on my twitter it's it it exists sometimes 
Um, and what I'm most looking forward to, um, specifically uh, the end of this year, is Louis Tomlinson's upcoming sophomore album, Faith in the Future. It's coming out November 11th, um, going back to artists finding their groove and what they want to make. This is very much something that he has repeatedly said. This is the kind of music I want to make, so I'm very excited for that. Make sure to listen or else. <laughs> the total restraint that you and Mint and I have shown in not uh, fearing, digressing into Leafs talk and alienating <laughs> poor West Coast non-hockey fan friend. <laughs> Good for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I am looking forward to Weird because I yes. love a parody biopic. I don't know if there is going to be a more perfect parody biopic than Walk Hard, like, Someone who was recently bringing up just how perfect Walk Hard is, but Weird, I think, might come close. Um, and I also, everything about Weird Al delights me. Um, and I think Daniel Radcliffe looks great in the role, so I'm really looking forward to that. You can find me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy or follow the show at Peak Show Pod. As I said, we're taking a break until 2023, but you can go through our back catalog for episodes on, well, we might as well uh, promote these episodes. We got episodes on David Fincher and Saw and Scream and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and So You Think You Can Dance and Arrested Development and oh, so much more. Um, special thanks to uh, Jared Daly uh, for our art and our theme song is Homo Logo by Jack Dump. Take it easy and remember, keep my podcast name out your fucking mouth. <laughs>